0: Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host Marcus Grodi for this uh, weekly program in which we take some time to 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 pause and look into the word of god and and i as I've mentioned in the past one of the goals for this program is for us to examine the scripture uh and we do often a comparative study because my guests on this program often are converts to the Catholic Church, so we're doing a a bit of a comparison as they look at these scriptures, on the one hand, from the way that they previously either understood them or didn't even see them, to to the way now how they understand them as they've come into the church. And again, we're coming to you from the Coming Home Network International over EWTN Radio. Our guest for today is Dr. Richard Smith. Hello, Richard. How are you doing?
1: Fine, thanks. How are you, Marcus?
0: Thanks for joining us here in the studio. Thanks for having me. And uh, Richard appeared on the Journey Home program on Monday night in which he was able to um, give a more detailed description of his journey. So if by chance you didn't hear the Journey Home program, you can also go back to EWTN.com and uh, watch one of the reruns or you can actually listen to the audio at any time on EWTN.com. Excuse me. Uh, Dr. Smith was born in Hartford, Connecticut. His father was an Episcopal priest, his mother a convert to the uh, Episcopal Church from Presbyterianism. Uh, He grew up in Hawaii, Connecticut, Maryland, began to practice Christianity again in the Episcopal Church after a period of agnosticism. Then he was received into the Catholic Church in September of 2001. He served as an instructor and assistant professor. Professor at the Newman College, Delaware County, Pennsylvania, in 2001 through 2004. and Then now as assistant professor, associate professor, and professor, you've made the journey, right? I have indeed, yes. <laughs> at Franciscan <laughs> Of <University>. another sort. <laughs> well, that's, that's great. 2004 to present. And which, uh, tell the audience, what are you teaching now at Franciscan?
1: Um, may I just? I have nothing against Hartford, Connecticut, but I was actually born in Hanford, California. Oh. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Um, I teach um, uh, classics. That is to say, I teach Greek and Latin uh, at all levels, um, and I also teach in our honors program, which is really a small, great, uh, great books program. That's right. Yeah.
0: And Which my son is is, is is struggling through, but yeah. he's he's really appreciating it. I'm so glad. Oh, uh, I don't think he's,
1: he's he's not struggling uh, except that they all struggle to do the work. But uh, <laughs> but he's doing very well. Thanks.
0: Well, he thoroughly <laughs> really enjoys, uh, um, and I'm learning vicariously through, through him because he's, uh, he's reading all kinds of great really? classics that I didn't have the privilege mm-hmm. of, of studying myself. Yeah. So uh, no, but I mentioned you told your whole story on or a condensed version of it on the Journey on program right. because it's hard to tell Right, sure. everyone's journey. But maybe for the audience now, just uh, rather than go through the, the whole journey, what would you say, you were an Episcopal priest and you mm-hmm. had uh, been ordained in originally in Canada. That's right. You yeah. served a number of years in Canada mm-hmm. and then you returned to the United States. What would you say in kind of in, in, in a summary or as a reminder, what was the key issue that awakened you to the need to come home to the church,
1: I think it was authority. Um, as a as an Episcopal priest, I found that uh, um, uh, even in Eastern Canada, where the church had not liberalized nearly as quickly as the Episcopal Church did in the uh, United States, still, what what I was teaching, and I, I felt that I was teaching um, orthodox, um, traditional um, doctrine that had been taught for um, you know two millennia. Um, I found I, I realized that what I was teaching had no support behind it in the church. Uh, not I shouldn't say no support, but but the the support was weak. Yeah. And um, and I felt um, uh, uh, therefore that what I was teaching, my people could say was simply opinion, right? Not not something authoritative. Uh, and therefore, um, I that caused the initial doubt, and it's from there that I think the uh, the issue uh, worked out, worked itself out.
0: You know, Richard, that's. That's akin to, to mm-hmm. what sparked my own journey back to yeah. the church. Uh-huh. Um, when I was a Presbyterian pastor, it just hit me mm-hmm. that what I was teaching from a particular verse on a Sunday mm-hmm. was different than other clergy in the community mm-hmm. who believed equally in the infallibility of Scripture. Right, right. But yet we taught different things. Mm-hmm right? Indeed. But I'd love to have your thought on this because that's a common thing that I encounter with clergy converts to the church. Mm -hmm. But not all of our clergy brothers see that. Mm -hmm. You know, like my guess is you knew a few good Episcopalian friends that either didn't see it Mm -hmm. or weren't bothered by it. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you look back, I mean.
1: Well, there there are two two issues, I think. one is uh if 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 you think back to saint augustine's um on christian doctrine, he says that any interpretation of scripture that promotes charity is a good one
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> so that opens the door wide
1: well no i think not if you if you understand what augustine meant by by holy charity okay um so that's that's one side of it i think there is some uh some room for uh, uh diversity of in a, of interpretation but on the other hand um if you um for instance, took one of the scripture passages that I that I didn't even see,
0: yeah.
1: um, which we'll look says, at in a moment. Yeah, yep. but but speaking of two Thessalonians two fifteen, yeah, what it where it says so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which were taught by us. Well, what does tradition mean, <laughs> and what is it? What is its role in, um, you know, in the life of the church? And and there is a, there is a place where there is much diversity, where uh, uh, there probably ought not to be. <laughs> Right, you know that, that's that's why I mean, there's a and an, on the one hand and the other hand here.
0: Well, yeah. it's interesting that you you, uh, you that first quote from Augustine kind of says that as long as it's done in love, hmm.
1: no, it, as it promotes love, promotes love. Yeah,
0: and uh, I'm I'm being a kind of a little devil's advocate here uh-huh. because you and I know that his understanding of love is not what our culture thinks. Right. Yeah. So unless you under, have a yeah. clear understanding of love mm-hmm. you can take that passage and just run with it of course yeah. so it's, it's interesting you need the right interpretation so you have the right interpretation yeah. of the right interpretation yeah yeah even to have the right terms yeah. um and there's that old statement i think it was augustine you're more the classics guy about well you're probably right <laughs> in, in, in 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 essentials unity mm-hmm. in non-essentials diversity. Mm-hmm. And in all things charity. Right. I think that's Augustine. Yes, I think so, yeah. All right. And my guess is that you Episcopalians like that statement too.
1: Yes, we did. (laughs) Right? Yeah.
0: But the question is, wait a second, what are the essentials? Mm -hmm. Because I think back on your journey, Mm -hmm. that was one of the questions that was arising Mm -hmm. in your own struggle. What are the essentials Mm -hmm. and the Mm non-essentials? Well, we... um, I mean, how do you define them? Our
1: communion, uh, starting in the Reformation, had had defined the essentials as, um, as we were speaking this morning. You know, the 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 the, uh, the single prayer book, the two testaments, the um, uh, the three um, uh, creeds, and and the uh, four general first four general councils, and those were uh, uh, seen to be authoritative at the time. Uh, the by speaking of the councils they of course meant the uh, the um the consensus of the of the of the fathers of the church uh those were authoritative as well as other anglican documents some of which were contained in the prayer book some uh beyond that like the the homilies um the crime hom- homilies uh these were um these were considered to be authoritative and yet um they had ceased to be authoritative uh, by and large in my day in fact we um uh, not long after Asodane in the Episcopal and the um, Anglican Church of Canada, the old prayer book was uh, set aside as a kind of historical document, you know, so, <laughs> and that's what had been authoritative. So uh, we we entered into a kind of period of of, of um, change uh, uh, without any uh, not not development as the, as the Catholic Church understands it, uh, a development which um, is both has a continuity of the past and in which the developments are um, are. Um, Sort of regulated and guided by the magisterium of the church, we just entered into a period of change, and and we even left behind the continuity. So all we had was change. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. it's uh, like I
0: think it was Newman. Yeah. Didn't he use the acorn oak analogy? He
1: may have. I, I don't or recall if that. No.
0: Was uh, I forget who did that. In other words, mm-hmm. an acorn will grow into an oak. Mm-hmm. There's you can obviously see that an oak tree is different yeah. looking than an acorn. Yeah but it it is a development of the same tree it is always mm-hmm. an oak mm-hmm. but it's an acorn to a yeah. tree yeah. It, it wasn't you know it wasn't a chicken egg mm-hmm. to a tree yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah exactly or like a human embryo to a to a human being yeah 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 <laughs> right. it, it's that it's yeah. that same yeah. thing
0: the development of the same thing within boundaries mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and you know i even think about your episcopalian background well there's the 39 articles right mm-hmm. And
1: they were contained in the old prayer book.
0: Yeah, but the originally there were more than 39.
1: There were, I think, 42 at one point. Yeah, Yeah. so we yeah. see even from the beginning,
0: yeah. just in the, the definitive yeah. set, there was a, a change yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, in the number. Um, but that gets to the point, the issue mm-hmm. of authority. Mm-hmm. And as you said, there were a couple scriptures that in the process you didn't even see before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and I let's deal with the first one that I'll tell some those of you that listen to deep in scripture often, you're gonna hear scriptures that we've looked at before, other mm-hmm. guests have, but I'm always fascinated that depending on the mm-hmm. guest's background, that the issue of the text itself mm-hmm. can be radically different than another person mm-hmm. because interpretations can vary from one denomination yeah. to the next. So the first passage which you mentioned a little bit ago Second Thessalonians two fifteen. Let me read this, and then what I'd like to ask first, Richard, is is how did you deal with this passage before? And mm-hmm. if you didn't deal with it, if you if you had dealt with it, <laughs> how would you have dealt with it? And this was one of those passages that it hit me like right. a two by four on right. my journey. Right. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us either by word of mouth or by letter?
1: Well, we um, read this every year, at least once in the daily offices. It may have been twice. And I don't think I ever noticed it. And and, like you, I think once I looked at it uh, in um, (laughs) thinking about coming into Catholicism, it it struck me very differently. But just to back up and answer the the, the question um, about how I approached, I would have approached this Passage, or any other passage of Scripture, for instance, when I was preparing a sermon. Yes. Um, the um, originally, when I first went, uh, ha- just after I finished divinity school, um, I would have gone to uh, you know a, um, a commentary in, in a in the Anchor Bible or something, and and, uh, and thought about it that way. Um, and I never did put down the modern commentaries because they can be very useful. Um, um, uh, this may shock some of your listeners, but I used to find uh use in, in Bultmann's commentary on saint John. <laughs> um, Bultmann was a brilliant man, <laughs> and unfortunately uh he was um, um his the effect I think of his theology has been wicked but uh yeah. I, there he had some wonderful insights but anyway the i would I still always went to modern commentary sometime you know when I, when I needed to to fill in background or whatever. But I found not long after, I read not long after um, I left divinity school, um, the approach that uh, the great poet and Anglican priest uh, George Herbert uh, followed, uh, recommended it in his uh, uh, A Parson to the Temple, a book really on on, uh, how to be a parson. Hmm. Um, And he said, you know, first you have to approach scripture with prayer. Uh, You have to approach it, um, you have to compare passages with passages. You should not read passages out of context. Um, you should consult the fathers and the schoolmen, meaning the, the medieval doctors, uh, <laughs> he, he said. This is an Anglican uh, clergyman of the 17th century. And I think also he would have said, you know, the creeds and so forth, you know. Uh, yeah. So, and, and I tried to do that, you know, prayer, the older, um, the fathers and, and the other commentators. Um, I often actually used um, the, the, the great Lutheran um, commentator, Bengel, uh, he had a wonderful um, uh, the Gnomon Testamenti, Novi Testamenti, I think it was called, and I found his um, didn't always agree with him theologically, but he he read with just incredible sensitivity to the to the to the text of the New Testament. I thought. Um, so I, I often consulted the commentaries of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, Thomas Aquinas and,
0: well, l- let me ask you then: mm-hmm. the way I was taught to prepare sermons when I yeah. went to seminary, right. and I went to seminary just down the road from you at yes, the exact same yeah. time. That's yeah. really funny. I uh, didn't realize that, but I was told when you start on Monday morning, mm-hmm. you, I was told don't open the commentaries till Thursday. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, you, you know, you, you retranslate the passage for yourself from the mm-hmm. original languages. You do the exegesis. You come up with your conclusion mm-hmm. on what it means on your own. Then look at the commentaries. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's all I was taught. Yeah. Well, I well, I, I
1: was at Harvard, and we didn't get any <laughs> sermon training. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> And um, I did. I I, sh- I I should have mentioned that I always did look at it, um, you know, in the Greek of the Hebrew, and, and, and uh, often compared it with the Vulgate too. Well, the and,
0: reason I mentioned yeah, that was not yeah. was that what what confronted me mm-hmm. was that when I finally went to the commentators, I never found any that disagreed with me, mm-hmm. because I had cho- hand chosen my commentators that I already liked. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in other words, they weren't going to disagree with right. me because I already <laughs> liked them. Yeah. So I was only comparing my own interpretation yeah. with my own interpretation because right. I was picking guys I liked. Yeah. yeah. That was, um, well, I mean, it I, sounds I, like you were a little more broad in, in finding commentaries that challenged your way of thinking.
1: I, I did. I did approach them, uh, thinking that I was going to learn from them. Yeah. 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 I, um, you know, people like Thomas, you can always learn from, yeah. um, uh, people like Bengal, the uh, the Lutheran um, I could learn from and, uh, and, and the, well, the, uh, the great Catena Aurea of uh, Thomas Aquinas I found that very useful um, See as an evangelical yeah,
0: presbyterian I yeah, never read Thomas it yeah, okay. never even crossed my mind yeah, yeah. and I, I think as I look back for you that the Lord was already opening your heart to a, a wider breadth of, oh, I think, of yes. the tradition yeah. and this passage now did you see this passage before? No, I, I no no. So
1: no you, I, I read it. I must have read it probably twice a year, as I say in, in the daily offices.
0: But weren't really confronted by yeah. what it says. Yeah. So if you would now think about, if from an Anglican standpoint, mm-hmm. so then brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or leather. You would have filled in maybe the four things that you talked about. The well, um, if I were look, if I had to, you
1: want my, my initial yep. reaction, I think the way I must have read this. Every time I read it during the year was, well, there was no New Testament yet. So when he says word of mouth, what he means is the New Testament, right? Okay. And scripture, of course, the letter was the, uh, would have maybe, I might have interpreted it as the, as the Old Testament, perhaps. Or, or here it's letter, well, these, obviously he's referring to what's going to become the uh, the canonical, canonical Pauline letters of the New Testament. I never would have seen, never did see, until I really began to read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, that what he's talking about here are the two, Streams uh, uh, that come that come of come from the one deposit of the, of the truth, the word, uh, the word of God, which come to us both in tradition and in Scripture.
0: See, when I yeah. I wondered if you had a little bit of this because yeah. you came from Harvard and I came from down the road, yeah, right? Um, which is kind of funny because mm-hmm. my seminary mm-hmm. was established, from what I was told, because Harvard had got so bad that there was another seminary that was established <laughs> to deal with the Unitarianism of Harvard, at least that's the way of the interpretation, Andover Newton. I expect it's true. <laughs> Andover Newton yeah, yeah. to f- provide another safe haven to, yeah. to establish clergy because Harvard had yeah. gone Unitarian as mm-hmm. a result of Charles Chauncey and others in the early days. But then Andover Newton itself had gone off in, right. in, in a more liberal direction yeah. So than Gordon Conwell yeah. was established. Yeah. yeah. So there's our connection. Yeah. Uh, but that, that
1: must be a true history.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know. Again, those of you listening, I, that's just the, yeah. the, the, the oral tradition of right. our seminaries. Yeah. But the, if I were to look back on this passage, I would have balked on the idea of oral tradition. Mm-hmm. And the reason was that what I was being influenced by was the more fundamentalist evangelical mm-hmm. interpretation of Scripture, mm-hmm. which saw that it was the liberals who were trying to bring in this idea of oral tradition mm-hmm. uh, that preceded the Gospels and the New Testaments that were much later, and therefore, because there was this oral tradition, mm-hmm. therefore, the written document later can't really be trusted.
1: Right, right.
0: And that was coming in on more of the liberal, biblical. Mm-hmm. But really, that's not what's behind this passage.
1: No. No, I don't think so. No. I... um. I would not have looked at it that way, right. uh, because for, for us, tradition, uh, as Anglo-Catholics, which, I, which is what I was, uh, sort of on the Catholic side of Anglicanism, um, tradition uh, was an important and conservative uh, uh, element in our, in our thinking. And in fact, uh, we would have held tradition out over against the... Um, uh, the, the, the liberalizing changes in our, in our, yeah. uh, in our, in our communion. So I, we had a very different. This if, would have I've,
0: been your rally call. Yeah, yeah. Stand firm and hold the tradition. Well, both
1: scripture and tradition we would have. And, and, yeah. but, but as Anglo Catholics, uh, at least the way I interpreted it, I'm, I'm sure there were other Cat Catholic, Anglo Catholics who weren't this way, but, but I would have s- s- firmly subordinated tradition to uh, scripture. And I also would have cut off tradition, uh, much earlier than, than, than the Catholic church does. yeah. Uh, <laughs> And um, and that is what changed for me here. That 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 really, in looking at a, at a passage like this and, and reading it uh, with uh, you know in light of the uh, catechism of the Catholic Church, um, I saw that uh, tradition and scripture are parallel streams, flowing from from um, our Lord Jesus Christ.
0: Because the Anglicans kind of end things with the fourth, first four, yeah, or, councils,
1: or, or maybe Saint John of Damascus, but yeah, that that in the in the patristic period, sure.
0: So you would have seen a time mm-hmm. when the Catholic Church got off base.
1: That that was the traditional Anglican account, yes.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. So what would you say was the uh, the realization that awakened you to the con- continuity of mm-hmm. sacred tradition from the beginning to the now within the Catholic Church?
1: Well, um partly what I was mentioning when we um did the um, um the Coming Home show, um, that um it seems that there is a di- uh, there has, there was a dynamic element even in the New Testament uh, that that, that, um, that both community and tradition in the New Testament um, uh, and certainly uh, throughout the, the the early church and beyond um, are actually a dynamic element. and it's only out of this dynamism that scripture gets established in the canon. And then that becomes, uh, well, uh, there was the Old Testament, of course, before that. But okay. but that these two together become a kind of static element. Uh, they they do, as a canon, provide some kind of a standard. But there is also a, a continual dynamism that, that does not cease with the Fourth Ecumenical Council or with um, St. John of Damascus. And that that dynamism uh, allows things that, um, for instance, in Scripture are not spelled out um, uh, Perfectly well, such as church structure, perhaps, or the doctrine of the Trinity. It allows these things to be um, further um, thought about in our frail and and temporal human way, and uh, with the magisterium of the Church to be also established. The, uh, the what's true and what's false can be separated from each other in this dynamic interplay of scri- of tradition, Scripture, and uh, and the community, which is the Church.
0: It's fascinating to think that you know, when if Christ died in 30 A.D. approximately, mm-hmm. right? that the Gospels are written 15 to 20 years later, mm-hmm. we, we assume, and then we have this long period of the letters mm-hmm. that, depending on which different scholar, puts them either all before the fall of Jerusalem or before the end of the first century. Sure. But the issue is, as far as I know, we've never been able to identify concretely when the idea of a New Testament arose, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Until when did the thinkers, the leaders of the church, began realizing that we're going to add an official, canonical uh, collection of new books mm-hmm. into this same corpus of writings as the old? There's nothing in the New Testament itself that seems right. to imply that that right. presumption.
1: Right. They they were apparently written before there was a New Testament. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. So it
1: is the church that uh, gives us that. A- at uh, some
0: point, yeah. the Holy Spirit guides the leaders to start speaking of these documents mm-hmm. as a New Testament. Mm-hmm. And that, as far mm-hmm. as we know, developed sometime in the second century, mm-hmm. not in the first, when all these books yeah. were, were written. Mm-hmm. And uh, this next passage, which we're going to just – I want to make sure we at least read it before we go to our first break – which follows right on First Timothy three fifteen. If I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Just briefly, before we get into it deeply, was that a verse you were aware of when you were an Anglican?
1: No, I would. am again. I must have read this twice a year in the daily offices. I simply did not see it. it I, I, in fact, I can't even imagine how I might have. Uh, I read it, except that there was a history in Anglicanism. That it was a, you know, um, that—I'll uh, finish up later. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's good. good yeah, pause, because yeah. we could do have yeah. to take a break. Cause, yeah.
0: Well, my guess is, as you were an Anglican, seeing the Anglican Church as one of three great branches of the yeah. Church, yeah. though that was the, that was the pillar and ballwork of the Church, yeah. but— Which of the three? (laughs) Right. We'll look at that in a moment. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grody, joined today by Dr. Richard Smith. And you're hearing us on EWTN, the global Catholic radio network. an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for Wings,
1: EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook,
0: and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the Wings link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN.
1: Get your Wings today. Hi, this is Jerry Usher reminding you to listen to Vocation Boom Radio, Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern, exclusively on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Each week I bring you dynamic interviews with bishops, priests, vocation directors, even seminarians and those who support them, all in an effort to assist the Holy Spirit in what is truly a vocation boom around the world. That's Vocation Boom Radio, Saturdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, only on EWTN Radio.
0: CH Resources is excited to
1: offer you Marcus Grody's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the Church, this book will
0: provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110.
1: Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged
0: and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host Marcus Groda. I joined today by Dr. Richard Smith. We're just having a good old time here in the break talking about all kinds of scriptures that we didn't see and and still are thankful that we have the teacher of the church to make sure we keep them in line. Yeah. You know, and as we look at these passages, Richard, it's still even though you and I both didn't see these passages when we were right. But even as we look back, it's amazing to imagine all the different ways our separated brethren might try and interpret these mm-hmm. to fit them into their theologies. Yeah. Yeah. Like this next one, which you, you say you didn't see. I didn't either. I, I think sometime in the middle of the night some Catholic came and put that in my Bible because it wasn't there before. <laughs> if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. I mean, think for a second, how, how would you imagine your average Anglican Episcopalian would make, if they had to preach on that verse and couldn't avoid
1: it? <laughs> well, I think there was a, you know, the, the, the prayer book, right? Uh, in the old days, anyway, um, the prayer book was, um, was what held the Anglican communion together, uh, was our standard of, of, of doctrine, uh, and it um, did, I think, probably set some parameters for reading scripture. For instance, um, uh, they really were bishops, because we had bishops, right? And, and bishops, we ordained bishops in our prayer book. We had priests and so forth. So right. these things, mu- you had, this kind of set the parameters for how you read about church order uh, in the New Testament. So we did have some sense of the church providing a, um, a kind of authoritative uh, opinion. But to think of the church as being both the, um, in a sense, the foundation or the ground uh, as well as perhaps the uh, retaining wall, or even the uh, <laughs> the, uh, the the fortified fortifications of the truth, and that the the household of the truth, or perhaps the temple of the truth, uh, the pillar, as in other words, uh, was the church. That somehow the church was what both um, held up the building of the truth and uh, f- and defended the building of the truth um, from the very beginning. Was was extraordinary. That that yeah. makes the, the church much more important and and far less derivative, really. That I think the church was, in a sense, an Anglican. The authority of the church was in an
0: Anglicanism. I know in non-Catholic, non-Anglican, Episcopalian, uh, right. Protestant traditions, right. when we we've not necessarily intentionally, but habitually mm-hmm. looked at passages like this, mm-hmm. and were often ignorant or of history mm-hmm. or just ignored history. Um, and we we knew the New Testament, we knew the book of Acts, mm-hmm. and then we knew Martin Luther. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then whatever yeah. tradition we were in. Yeah. Um, so the idea of my little Presbyterian church being the pillar and full foundation of truth, I mm-hmm. could get away with that preaching to my congregation mm-hmm. as long as we didn't bring history into the equation. Right. Because right. then we saw the absurdity of it. Mm-hmm. But particularly from an Anglican standpoint, I mean, there's some things in the Anglican history mm-hmm. that did they bother you when you looked at the Anglican church as a pillar and foundation of truth? Or did your average Anglican just kind of ignore that period of time?
1: Well, you know, we, we had a very different... Um um, view of the Reformation um, that, uh, than I have now. Uh, we thought of the Reformation as, as, as a necessary correction of abuses of the, um, of the, what we had come to call the Catholic Church yeah. uh, during, the, during the Middle Ages. Um, we felt that uh, we were returning to what was the genuine uh, church order, the genuine church teaching, the genuine, genuine administration of the sacraments, of the uh, first centuries of the church um so we we uh it was probably uh somewhat blinkered of us but uh, we uh (laughs) we we really did think of ourselves as um as as
0: you the the church actually had the some authority you had reestablished the pillar and foundation of truth
1: i don 't think we I, I never thought of it as the pillar and foundation of the truth okay. in All in right. the radical sense that i was I was trying to describe it there, and I think in the radical sense really which the Roman Catholic Church says, right. but the church was there as um, a kind of guarantor of scripture, I think All right. you know.
0: at least from your perspective yeah. okay so what now how do you see this passage i mean uh, how do we explain this passage now from a Catholic perspective
1: well um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that the the um, um, again, the, the community, which I spoke of before, as being one of the dynamic elements, uh, along with the tradition, uh, in the, um, even in the New Testament and certainly through, through early church times um, and, and on down the ages, um, that community is the church and that community uh, is what has both um, allowed scripture to coalesce in, into um, a, a set of canonical readings and um, has preserved the tradition, which is the other, um, you know, river in a sense or stream, which which flows from the one truth, who is Jesus Christ. Um, so that the the church, uh, um, far from being deriva- derivative you know, as a as a kind of secondary guarantor of Scripture, um, is in fact the locus uh, for both of these streams, for their preservation uh, and for their uh, their their continuation, and also. Uh, as As tradition develops, as doctrine develops, um, it is, it is that the church, through its magisterium is able to to make decisions on which are the genuine developments and which are not.
0: There are all kinds of examples, including those first four councils mm-hmm. that the Anglican Church recognized the right. authority of, that only make sense from the standpoint that the Holy Spirit, as Jesus promised, mm-hmm. is indeed protecting. Mm-hmm its leaders and guiding them into all truth as he promised in the yes. chapters 14, 15, and 16 of, of John. Yes. is the only thing that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And if you believe that the fifth ecumenical council can't be trusted, right? Right? Or the sixth, or the seventh, or right. eighth, or ninth.
1: Or at least it's not, it uh, hasn't spoken infallibly, so to speak. Right. Yeah, yeah.
0: Then who's to decide right. that the fourth, was speaking infallibly if you're mm-hmm. going to question the fifth right. or the third or the second or the first, mm-hmm. and there you are. You've unzipped the garment.
1: right? Well, I, I think the Anglicans would have said, well, the first four were clearly <laughs> uh, ecumenical. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, that's – in fact, you have yeah. sitting here on the table – I won't mention the book that we have here, It's, uh-huh. uh, but it just happens to be sitting here on the table, but it includes the theory – of certain modern theologians that promote the idea that in the earliest days of the church, there was no one Mm -hmm. church, Mm -hmm. that there were these communities, independent communities, the Petrine, the Johannine, the different communities, and that there was complete freedom, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And they they could run wild with their ideas, different ways of worshiping, until that nasty Roman church imposed, quote, orthodoxy, unquote. Right, right.
1: Well, um, I, I don't think that's actually historical. There, there's, right. you know, you can argue that there were trajectories, and and I suppose there were certain traditions uh, preserved here and there. Uh, but fundamentally, the I think the um, the um, the teaching of the church was uniform and and universal from the very beginning, and we see that I think uh, in Irenaeus, who after all is fairly early on. We right. see it. Well, goodness, we see it in Ignatius of Antioch as well, who's very right. early on. Right. Right. Um, and I think we see it in the formation of the New Testament, and in, in the um, the, uh, the awareness of the different um, uh, evangelists and and uh, and uh, epistolary writers of, of um, each other's teaching.
0: Yeah, yeah it, and I didn't see this before yeah. either when I was a Presbyterian. Yeah. But I I wasn't buying into that other idea, even though I was right. originally ordained a Congregationalist. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I but the now when I see that that idea of all these independent communities. You try then interpret what you find in the early church fathers or in the book of Acts mm-hmm. or even the teachings of Christ from that perspective. And it ends you end up with nothing but chaos. Right. And a God that really didn't care what happened after Jesus. Mm-hmm. Just kinda of, okay, guys, it's been good to know you, now just do yeah. your own thing. Right. I'll send the Holy Spirit and then have a lot of fun. Or you decide what you want to do. But when you look at it from the perspective of there was a pillar and foundation of truth. Mm-hmm through which baptism you became a part of, yeah. then it makes sense. Yeah. One, one can
1: interpret those, those so-called trajectories another way, which is that there were a number of centrifugal forces at, at work in the church. And uh, uh, the study of Gnosticism over the last 50, 60 years, I think, has shown that, uh, well, one can interpret the, uh, the evidence in different ways, but, but has shown that from the very beginning in Christianity, there were these centrifugal forces, people who simply did not get the historical nature of the Christ, yeah, and uh, or that God would stoop down and uh, and humble Himself—that's unthinkable, right? That God would <laughs> would humble Himself to become man? Surely not. I mean, that's yeah, yeah that that's what people, some people, were thinking. And it, I think it it is the it's not that Catholics, you know, the Catholic tradition was imposed from the top, but I think from the very beginning, an understanding of Christ as Man, God, the God Man, of of the Holy Trinity, of the Holy Trinity, humbling itself yeah. to bring back these people He loved, these creatures that were in the body and yet had these, were made in His image. You know, all of all of that, I think, was there from the very beginning.
0: And the the dogmas that that uh, rose to the surface yeah. were not the easiest conclusions.
1: That's true too. Yes, yeah.
0: the Trinity. Yeah. Divinity of Christ, yeah. Mary, the Mother of God, yeah. the the real presence, body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ mm-hmm. in the Eucharist—they were the trans. Those were not the easiest conclusions. The easiest conclusions were actually the heretics.
1: Yeah, and that's what I meant when I was speaking sarcastically about what's so obvious. But those are the easy conclusions. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. That The God would never, the one, the uh, <laughs> the source of all being, that He would humble Himself to take on this lowest bit of creation that he made? Or that perhaps emanated from him?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let's take another break. Uh, Richard, when we come back, we'll look at uh, another key passage that fits in with the first two, and that's the Matthew 16 passage right. that that really we see the establishment mm-hmm. of the church in, yeah. in Simon. We'll, yeah. we'll see that when we get back. Yeah. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Dr. Richard Smith, and you're hearing us on EWTN your Global Catholic Radio Network. The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website www.chnetwork.org or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Mark Scrodi, joined today by Doctor Richard Smith. We've looked at Second Thessalonians two, First Timothy three fifteen. Now a passage that uh, completes the triumvirate is the Matthew sixteen eighteen through nineteen, and I'll also read Isaiah twenty two, which connects. Uh, Richard, let me read these, and then you you go ahead and and uh, talk about why these. Scriptures were such an important part of your own journey. Okay, thanks. And this is Jesus speaking to Simon. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let me also read Isaiah 22, 22. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open.
1: Well, thanks, Marcus. Um, well, we, we've talked. We've gone sort of through a progression uh, from um, the notion of a um, of uh, of a tradition which is of equal um, authority with 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 scripture to the notion of the of the church uh, being the um, the. Uh, not just the guarantor, but the actual um, uh, dynamic element in which tradition and scripture uh, come together. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, how? How? Wh- who? Who is the ultimate judge uh, uh, of, of of developing tradition, for example? Um, and I think this these these passages point to that. And and um, I didn't uh, see these actually until I read uh, Scott Hahn's book, uh, Rome, "Rome, Sweet Home," I think it's called. Right, uh-huh. and he mentions it in there. And then um, another. Uh, I think one of your um, interviewees, uh, Father Ray Ryland, oh, has yes. mentioned this uh, a number of times in yes. sermons. Yes, good friend. And um, the, the passage from Isaiah 22, I think, shows uh, that the, um, the appointment of Peter is a personal appointment, not just a, a general uh, appointment to, to the apostles or, more broadly, to the, the, gathered, the gathering of Christians, but is a, a direct personal appointment to Peter himself. Uh, and the binding and loosing is not a general um, uh, uh, gift of authority to the the, the apostle to the to the apostle at large, but it is to Peter, and that the the church, um, the primacy in the church is given is, is given to Peter in this passage. I think.
0: Yeah, in Matthew eighteen, you'll see a sharing of some of these powers, mm-hmm. but in this incident, which. Uh, preempts that. I mean, it's before yeah. that one. You yeah. see this as a result of Simon's openness mm-hmm. to the malleability, to the, the yeah. inspiration of God, yeah. the Father, yeah. in helping him understand the truth about Jesus. Yeah. And the passage from
1: Isaiah is, again, a, 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 a gift of authority to a single person, Eliakim, the priest. Uh, and it is, he is given authority over the temple of God. And, and of course, the church is the temple of God. Mm-hmm. And um, he he has the the the, the primal authority. Uh, Eliakim does over the over the temple. I think as as Peter
0: has given it over the church. You know we're, you're using it as an example of the first two passages uh, of the first consuls. Mm-hmm. You know that where the church holds true mm-hmm. to conclusions that aren't necessarily the easiest for our intellect or our senses. Right. right. Uh, the Trinity. I mean, none of us understand, no one truly understands how it's possible mm-hmm. that there are three in one. Mm-hmm. Or in the divinity of Christ, completely God, completely man. Intellectually, mm-hmm. uh, how can we even envision how that's possible? Philosophers, we try and do that. But this you throw into this equation that you have this appointed authority in, in Simon Peter. Mm-hmm. You see this throughout history where... In the bottom, the end of it, uh, it was Peter holding fast to tradition and to the church. And, you know, I think, Richard, one of the key examples of that is in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. 1968, mm-hmm. when even leaders in the church thought for sure that it was time to change the longstanding tradition on the issue of contraception. Yes, yes. And, hey, it isn't in the Bible, so what do we do? Mm-hmm. It's in sacred tradition. mm mm-hmm. And the pressure and the understanding, and there were even book publishers already publishing, assuming that Paul the Six would change right, but he did not right
1: and that's the authority of peter um, it's interesting i i um one of our uh uh commencement speakers uh, i th- think it might be the present uh bishop of 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 Vancouver Canada i can't quite remember now was a secretary of the Paul the 6th and and uh, at the time in late in his life when Paul the 6th was um uh, under pressure to to abdicate right he once uh said I can't abdicate I'm Peter and that's not arrogant it's it's a it's a fact in, in a certain it's a spiritual fact that and and certainly that has been hel- you know held through through the 2000 years of church history that in some sense the current pope is Peter yeah you know whoever yeah. the current pope happens to be but but, but uh
0: mm-hmm. yeah. But our, you know, separate brethren have never understood the phrase "vicar of Christ." But it's it's really a servant of servants mm-hmm. is how yes. the holy fathers have always recognized mm-hmm. their responsibility. Um, as Peter was later given this call to shepherd, mm-hmm. feed my lambs, feed my sheep yeah. in John twenty one. Yeah. That's what every successor has has carried on the responsibility.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there are, it. it to to pick up on what um, uh, Cardinal Newman uh, now, uh, Saint John Henry Newman, um, uh, argue, blessed, blessed. We're, I'm sorry, we're, blessed. We're jumping way I, ahead. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> promoting him. Sorry, blessed, blessed John Henry Newman uh, said that um, the um, it, that if there is development, and I think it's clear that there is, even uh, the doctrine of sola scriptura in, in Protestantism is, is a development. Yeah, uh, it's not there in the New Testament. Um, the um, if there is development, then there must be an authority, and that authority, um, ultimately, uh, we believe as Catholics, is, is vested in, in in the papal office. And uh, and it seems to me, a, it, it seems to be a, a, a as as uh, as Cardinal Newman said, it's it's um, it's also happens to be one of the neatest <laughs>
0: theories, <laughs> as, yeah.
1: well, as well as one of the most uh, I think uh, one that holds um, the most. Uh,
0: when I, when I was in seminary, right down the street from you mm-hmm. one my theology professor, beloved uh Dr Nicole, you may have known him, but he mm-hmm. was Dr. Hahn and I had him at the exact same time that's yes. uh, and he was a Baptist and a very recognized evangelical scholar, mm-hmm. but his understanding of authority was the quasi unanimous mm-hmm. acceptance. Throughout history, in other words, the most people throughout all cultures—that's hmm. how you determine the, the ascension canon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's how you would yeah. decide yeah. decide this. But when you, you ask, "What is the one doctrine that every Christian therefore accepts, mm-hmm. quasi unanimously?" and there isn't anything, there isn't one thing that all Christians accept. Not all accept the same view of Jesus.
1: Mm -hmm. That's right.
0: So there isn't nothing purely quasi-unanimously accepted. Mm -hmm. So democracy cannot be the authority that decides at the end. And our Lord, of course, knew better than us. He assigned it into a person with the the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You know, we've got a little bit more time. Let's make sure you had one more passage here, which Richard, I didn't see this one either.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Or maybe
0: I didn't didn't want to see it because I couldn't explain it from my Calvinist background. Colossians 124, how did you explain this when you were Episcopalian? Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church.
1: To the extent that I explain this at all, I say, well, St. Paul was a great saint. (laughs) (laughs) And it was very early in the church's history. And and, uh, and it was through his sufferings that that was all... Set in order and established, and then that—that's fine. That happened then, and this is now. <laughs> um, but that I could complete our Lord's sufferings in my own body? No, that certainly not. No, that was—and uh, this also—that w- w- I, I would have seen this, and this is perhaps not what most Anglicans would have seen. I think this more, might come back more out of my own Calvinist heritage. But I, I um, you know, I, I thought that was. Um, Almost um, presumptuous and uh, uh, and hubristic, hubristic hubristric yeah. to, to to think that um, that I who to whom righteousness had been imputed, but who had not been made righteous myself, um, could yeah. add to Christ's sufferings. I mean, I, I could add to them certainly through my sins, but but that I could add to the, the beneficial effect of, of his sufferings
0: for his for his because body whatever righteousness we had was his anyway. Yeah, exactly. It just yeah. covered our yeah. Our, our, our sinfulness, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, which so made the, the sentence almost absurd
1: mm-hmm.
0: from our theological perspectives, yeah.
1: except perhaps for some wonderful special gra- impermanent grace that that was needed at the time of the uh, of the first apostles, perhaps. So but,
0: you, as an Episcopalian, didn't teach offer it up?
1: No, I did not. In fact, I did not he- hear <laughs> offer it up until I came to. Uh, <laughs> To um, to Franciscan University of Steubenville, when all the kids
0: say, offer it up," <laughs>
1: and I just I wish, I wish I'd grown up with that.
0: Well, in the time remaining, how do you help our audience understand that passage now? Well, um, God uh,
1: actually um, not only imputes, but He actually infuses grace. He He can make us genuinely holy. Can make us um, can make us good. He can, uh, we are, our natures are not totally depraved and ruined. They are wounded. They are sick. They are damaged. But by grace, he restores that. And as long as we remain in a state of grace, we can participate. We are really genuinely members of his body. And we can, uh, you know, make up the number of his sufferings uh, for um, the salvation
0: of the world. Yeah, there's that passage in, Romans eight, where, when it tells us that we can call uh, f- uh, God our Father, mm-hmm. Abba, our Father, and it goes through that long line of things um, that you know that we can experience. It makes that provision provided we suffer. Yeah. Yes. Provided we suffer. Yes. It's a necessary part of our growth. And those traditions that try and say suffering is yeah. not a part of it, yeah. we never, you never grow at a maturity yeah. then. Nor is it simply a byproduct of our
1: sin. It, it it can be for those who are in a state of grace. It can be good for other people and for themselves. And that's why I wish I had been raised on offering it up because then I could have offered up so much for oh, other people.
0: That's right. the the Mormons may have it wrong about baptism, yeah. but at any given time, we can look back on our lives and offer it up now. Yes. Oh, you that's, know, yes, We yeah. really can. That's yeah. the beauty of confession yeah. and laying before the Lord our mistakes yeah. And, yeah. And, and maybe our ungratefulness yeah. to God. And it
1: knits us together as a body.
0: Well, Dr. Smith, thanks for
1: joining us. Well, thank you, sir, Mr. Grodai. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to have you back sometime.
0: Time always flies too fast. So we'll have you back. Thanks a lot. And, thank you. And continue your witness at Franciscan University. my and, pleasure to be here. Thank you. And you're good. Word. Thank you very much. And thank you all for joining us on this program. I hope that it was an encouragement to you. I hope hearing uh, Dr. Smith's journey and the way he saw Scripture differently will challenge you to listen to the teacher that gave us the scriptures, the church. God bless you. See you next week.